It's Monday, July 31st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here are the three most insane things said on the Sunday shows. And I'll start off by saying it wasn't Asa Hutchinson or Will Hurd referring to the Hutchinson or Hurd administrations. I love when they do that. But this, the third weirdest thing, was said by another unlikely presidential aspirant, Nikki Haley. You know, we've got to stop electing people because they look good in a picture or they hold a baby well. Okay, let's play a game. What politician was Nikki Haley saying looks good in a picture? Who was she speaking of in relation to his caring, nurturing nature that might lend itself to cosseting a newborn? Want to guess? All right. Hear now the revelation. I think Mitch McConnell did an amazing job when it comes to our judiciary. Yes, we've got to stop electing such handsome Dans as Mitch McConnell, the kind of matinee idol that makes the lady swoon. And that was just the third stupidest thing. Here now is number two. Nothing is a shock to me anymore coming out from this Department of Justice, this Biden administration, uh, as President Trump mentioned, Meritless Garland. A mocking nickname for the attorney general from a lawyer going up against the attorney general. She's Alina Haba and calling Merritt Garland meritless was her thing. I mean, it was right there. How do you not take it, right? And to think the entire time during the last two years of the Trump administration, I held back from calling the guy William Barf out of a sense of decorum. But like I said, that was only the second most wackadoo thing uttered on the Sunday shows. Here was the wackadootiest. He is the most ethical American I know. Whereby, yeah, that's the same Alina Haba, and she there revealing to us that she has been floating inside a hyperbaric chamber exposed only to Donald Trump, Elizabeth Holmes, and the guy from Nexium. Well, anyway, it's as good a defense as any other, or at least Trump's actual defense, which is to use the presidency to stave off the penitentiary. Because we have got to stop electing people who just look great or wonderful with children, and are accumulating state and federal indictments like dung accumulates flies. I suggest next time, Alina Haba, just use what legal scholars call the Pee Wee Herman defense. I say we kill him. Yeah! I say we hang him, then we kill him. Yeah! I say we stop him. Yeah! Then we tattoo him. Yeah! Then we hang him. Yeah! And then we kill him. Yeah! R.I.P. Paul Rubin and the definition of ethical. On the show today, the largest trucking bankruptcy in history. It was called yellow. But first, Miles Taylor served as the Department of Homeland Security Chief of Staff during the early years of the Trump administration, but that's not why you know him. In that job, he was kind of Anonymous, literally, Taylor is the author of the 2018 New York Times op-ed, I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, byline, Anonymous. That op-ed became a book titled A Warning, and Taylor continues in the vein of an insider sounding the alarm about what comes next. His latest is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump, Miles Taylor up next.
Faced with news that an indictment is looming, Donald Trump posted on Wednesday to Truth Social, which is neither truthful nor very social, that they are getting, quote, big blowback. What an excellent act of branding for my next guest. His name is Miles Taylor, although by saying the name, I somewhat hurt his brand because you might know him as Anonymous, the staffer who claimed in 2018 that he was part of the resistance within the Trump administration. Miles Taylor was, in fact, a top staffer at the Department of Homeland Security, and his new book, Blowback, is, as per the subtitle, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump Miles, welcome to The Gist. Mike, you had so much good wordplay in that intro. You've left me with scarcely anything to say. But I do have to note, I saw that before I went to bed last night, Trump's comment, and I just... I couldn't get clever enough before I fell asleep to figure out how to say he's promoting the book. So I, I just yeah. gave up and went to bed. And you'd have to screenshot it because if you did it within the truth social uh, ecosphere, probably, A, you wouldn't want to put yourself out there and B, you probably wouldn't boost sales that much. Oh, no, M Mike, you're totally wrong there because, of course, I'm in the truth social ecosystem because in addition to being anonymous, I am the pseudonym behind QAnon, the far right ah, conspiracy theory. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm both anonymous and QAnon. And so I, I'm obviously active in those circles. So the, I literally, I want, I have one question written down and it was in that vein. So I want to talk a little bit about the anonymous essay and then I want to get to the warning. Do you think mm -hmm. that your anonymity, which was necessary to preserve your job and your safety to some extent, to a large extent, do you think the anonymity in a couple of ways led, a, gave attention, um, maybe credence, but more just the veneer of mystery. And it allowed people's brains to tell them whatever story they wanted to about the depth of the resistance in the same way that QAnon does that for adherence of that, let us call it philosophy. Uh, the answer, I think, is yes, is it was a double-edged sword using the device of anonymity, and it's not like I did this by accident, uh, using the device of anonymity I knew would draw attention to the message. And that was my point. Who the hell is Miles Taylor? Uh, yes, the White House, when they would put me on background with reporters would say, he's a senior administration official. And of course, Trump later tried to say, no, 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 he was a staff assistant. You know, I, I don't care about that. That doesn't hurt my feelings. Of course, that's yeah. what they're going to do. Right. Um, to, but, so but, to explain to the audience, you're identified by the Times as a senior administration official. And then, which of, of course, people's people's minds go to Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, you know, as senior sure. as you get. But then it comes out that you were the chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security. There was some debate. Is that really senior administration sure. official? Some journalists would say, I wouldn't define him as that. But then I've read stories where they... I did literally identified people who were later known to be chiefs of staff of uh, cabinet departments, and that is how they're identified. Well, but sure, and, 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 yeah. and that wasn't my job, right? I didn't self-identify yeah. as that. I left that to the New York Times, who had been told many times by the White House, we're going to let you speak to Miles Taylor, one of our senior administration officials. So, you know, again, neither here nor there in my mind. But to, to the question on anonymity, I mean, look, uh, make no mistake when I say this, I'm not comparing myself to the founding fathers, but my example here was the Federalist Papers, probably the book that had the biggest impact 
on my political awakening, which was the series of essays that the founding fathers wrote to sell the Constitution to the public. And they made a very deliberate decision when they wrote these essays. They did them anonymously because these guys were worried that if they did it in their own names, it would become a food fight about them individually and their various backgrounds and all the politics at the time. And so they wrote these essays anonymously. And guess what? It freaking worked. It led to this remarkable philosophical debate of the merits of the Constitution. And in another anonymous pseudonym cropped up, the Anti-Federalist Papers to oppose uh, the people arguing for the Constitution. It led to a really interesting debate. Um, I somewhat naively thought I could kickstart that kind of conversation by writing this piece from within the administration anonymously. I actually said at the time uh, to the very hand, small handful of people who knew at the times that I hoped that I, it, would, it would provoke a rejoinder from within the administration. And we could have a real debate on the fitness of the president to hold his office because his own cabinet, I mean, the point of me writing this at the time was his own cabinet. Uh, we were having conversations about if it got any worse, that the 25th Amendment might, might need to be invoked to replace the president. Now, when you go into an administration, there's a duty of confidentiality. But when the cabinet is talking about the president being so unhinged that he might need to be removed by his own team, that's the type of thing that, in my mind, the American public needed to know about and have an open discussion about. That's not the type of thing that needs to be in private anymore. We are in five-alarm fire territory for democracy. Now, that said, you make a great point, Mike. Did that lend, did that give oxygen to the fire of a deep state? Unfortunately, it did. And I later found out from Stephanie Grisham, who was Trump's communications director, that it made the president so insanely paranoid that it actually amplified all the things I was talking about, his conspiracy about a deep state, his worry about a deep state. And her comment to me, which is which I wrote about in the book Blowback, is that she said, you know, every meeting she was in with Trump, she would sit there looking at him, scanning the room, trying to find out who was anonymous. And she said they'd be, you know, in the middle of meetings long after I left the administration. And he would say, do you know who anonymous is? Do you know who it is? So uh, again, double-edged sword. I think it brought more attention to the message, but I also think it fed some of these conspiracies about an evil deep state out to overturn the president, which, of course, uh, you know, the folks that were resisting Trump were not uh, a deep state trying to defy the lawful orders of a commander in chief. It was folks trying to get him uh, to not do things that were illegal. One way to put it is, Tim Wu put it this way in an op-ed in the New York Times that he put his name to, looking back, what really saved the republic from Mr. Trump was a different set of limits on the executive, an informal and unofficial set of institutional norms upheld by federal prosecutors, military officers, and state election officials. To that list, would you say, and the occasional senior administration official who wouldn't disclose so publicly, but was operating to preserve the norms? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that the I was I'm probably at least one of the top 10 guiltiest people alive of propagating this notion that there was a so-called axis of adults protecting the American people from a right. wayward chief executive. And my conclusion was long and fraught and hard, but I came to the conclusion that that thesis was completely bogus, that uh, in, maybe in the first year, there were guardrails around Trump in the form of really good people, in fact, that were appointed to his cabinet. I mean, there were some people in that cabinet that may have even been chosen by Hillary Clinton to be in her cabinet. Um, some really, really good folks. But um, 
our ability to keep the commander in chief in check was disproven by the fact that Trump systematically identified and eliminated, eliminated those people. But a more broader philosophical conclusion, which was the American people really should not depend on unelected bureaucrats to protect them. That is neither our role, nor is it their role. It's the role of the voters to decide whether to fire uh, someone or rehire them into the job of chief executive. And it's ultimately why I quit and unmasked myself, is, is I felt like the anonymity wasn't serving its purpose. In fact, it was serving an opposite purpose. And if I have any regret about that period, it's that I didn't unmask myself even sooner. Because the thing I found out, Mike, is once I came forward, uh, to my surprise, it provided air cover for other people like me to quit the administration and also come forward with their concerns. And, you know, a lot of us were able to do that before the 2020 election, but I wish I'd done it way sooner. In fact, I wish I'd waited maybe a month to let the message sink in and then quit, you know, a month later and unmasked myself and just started from then on trying to recruit as many of my colleagues as humanly possible to quit and do the same thing because almost all of them felt the same way. I mean, sincerely, there's only a handful of people I can think of that were mega MAGA, that were genuinely, you know, committed to Trump's view of weaponizing federal power uh, for political purposes. Everyone else felt the same way. They felt the president was unhinged. And some of those people still today are in his orbit pretending to be hardcore Trumpers when, in fact, in private, they spent years like working alongside me saying this guy's a psychopath. We just have to wait him out. And, you know, I wish that people would step forward and and claim those statements. But that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is to say, look, you can't count on people in a second term to try to keep uh, Donald Trump in check. And that's why we need to be really clear eyed about what would happen in that second term or in the White House of a copycat. Yeah, I want to I definitely want to get to that. When did your boss who went on to be chief of staff, John Kelly, when did he find out you were anonymous? Um, I don't think the chief knew until um, about 30 minutes before it became public in 2020. And uh, I'm almost completely positive of that because I called him. He was one of the first people I wanted to notify that I was going to unmask myself. And, um, and I'll, I'll be uncharacteristically candid with you here, Mike. I don't think I've shared this before. Uh, I was extremely nervous to make that phone call because he's one of the last people I respect in Washington. And, and people still don't know the extent to which they can criticize John Kelly and, and, and some do on, on fair grounds. They don't know the extent to which uh, he protected the country against this guy, Donald Trump, while he was in office. But I called him. I was very nervous to tell him uh, this. And um, when I got him on the line and I told him I'd written the op-ed and, and the book anonymously, a warning, um, he said, you know, I'm so fucking proud of you and thank you. And I... Um, it definitely, you know, I, I teared up and, and I rarely tear up about anything, maybe a, maybe a real good sappy film. Um, and and that meant a lot to me is that I did had you ever did you ever suspect that he suspected it? Um, yeah, well, there was one moment very shortly after maybe a few hours after the op ed dropped. Um, I didn't expect the New York Times to be able to preserve my identity. I didn't. I mean, and, and all credit to the folks at the Times, they did a damn good job of it. But I expected like anything in Washington, it would leak. And so I had prepared a statement um, claiming ownership for when it inevitably would leak. And I see on my phone that the White House phone number was calling me a couple hours after it dropped. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, here we go. They found out. And I answer and it's John Kelly. Um, yeah. And he says, Miles, I hate to have to do this. And uh 
you know, my heart sank. It was like, wow, that was fast. You know, they're going to fire me now. And, and so now I've got to be out there in public on this and I'm not quite ready. And he said, the president wants every cabinet secretary to write him a personal note saying that they're not anonymous. And he said, I, I, I don't want to bother the secretary of Homeland Security with this. So can you just write this for her and sign her name and just say, I, Kirsten Nielsen, am not anonymous? <laughs> I had to let out a laugh, Mike, you know, because the irony was that the chief was on the phone with Anonymous. And so I did. I, you know, I wrote out a handwritten sure. note that You're said, like, I, I, can Kirst- do that. <laughs> I, Kirsten Nielsen, am not Anonymous. I, and I said, I'm in fact, the I'm White the House. only person in the federal firmament who could say that and be 100% sure yes. that it is true. <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, and, and look, I, I, I hated to have to do that at the time, um, genuinely. And, and people are completely within their rights to judge the decision of sounding the alarm anonymously. I mean, I like to say the whole experience of the Trump administration was sort of a moral choose your own adventure, or perhaps more importantly, like choose your own nightmare. You know, it's, you know, the question of, you know, oppose him or not before the election, go into the administration and try to keep it on the rails or oppose it from the outside. Once you're on the inside, you know, can, if, if saying no is no longer enough, do you quit and go public or do you quit and go quietly? When you go public, do you do it in your own name and not? I mean, there was a million branches of of moral decision-making. I probably made every wrong moral choice along that line and eventually got to the right choices. Um, but I'm unafraid at this point in my life to be a cautionary tale because I think it's really important for people to go out there and own their mistakes so other people don't make the same mistakes. And here we are as a country preparing for what I have been calling civic suicidal ideation, which is considering making the same stupid mistake again by nominating this guy and potentially putting him back in the White House. And I'm still a conservative, by the way. I'm a small L libertarian, and I would like to see a conservative in the White House. Donald Trump is not a conservative, in my view. In fact, he wants a government and a presidency that has so much power that it's in your mind every day and can take over your community at the push of a button. That's not conservatism. That's what we call autocracy. Okay, I want to get into a little bit of the details about why the second administration might be worse. Uh, You pointed out the guardrails, but what about Senate confirmation? How is he going to be able to get his handpicked toadies in to run these these, um, federal agencies? Well, he won't, uh, unfortunately. And what do I mean by that? spoke to a lot of Republican members of Congress who said to me on the record uh, that they didn't think that Trump would respect the Senate's advice and consent function in a second term, that he would merely install the people he wants to to run departments and agencies. And when he does that, sure, it might go to the courts. Uh, someone might sue and say uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security is someone who's been unlawfully appointed and not confirmed by the Senate. And let's say that goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agrees and says that person shouldn't be in that job. What authority does the Supreme Court have to enforce that decision? There is none. And that was really scary to me to hear multiple people play out that scenario and say they're prepared to go to war with the courts because they know the courts cannot enforce these decisions and that Trump will install acting cabinet secretaries across the administration who are unconfirmable. In fact, it's something he started to do towards the end. In fact, few people know this story, but at the very end of the Trump administration, this happened at the Department of Homeland Security. My former colleague, Chad Wolf, who was the acting secretary for more than a year, was determined by the courts to unlawfully have been put in that position. What are the consequences? 
none. There were no consequences. So there was an illegitimate Secretary of Homeland Security for more than a year, um, and, and there was little more than a wrist slap against the government. The Trump team has learned that that was the case, that there aren't really consequences, and will subvert the Senate's advice and consent function uh, in a second term. Yes, but that Chad Wolf ruling, I think, was the proper ruling as uh, I understand it, but was a little bit based on technicality. It's different from Donald Trump just appointing people and saying, well, she's now head of the agency. Everyone in the federal government or almost everyone disagreeing with that. And then Donald Trump saying, well, too bad. Well, you know, in the in the case of Chad Wolf, uh, it was a violation of the Vacancies Act. So there was a period of time in which, as I understand it, you know, he would have been allowed to temporarily serve uh, as an acting secretary. And that shot clock is usually around 180 days. And yes. he far exceeded that shot clock. Um, that's what they'll try to do. I mean, I, I don't imagine in a second Trump term that they would be so foolish to be that flagrant about it, uh, especially if there's a Republican Senate to just say, screw you guys. Um, but slow gradations of violating the Vacancies Act is how you can make that happen and then to tie it up in the courts for as long as you want. It's how someone like a Stephen Miller could be put in at the beginning to temporarily run a Department of Homeland Security and then through endless litigation be left in the job for an extended period by arming the Republican side with arguments about why that appointment uh, should continue. That's the type of thing that I worry about. But, but go beyond the Senate-confirmed positions. I think the real worry is there's a concerted legal effort right now to create the justifications to do widespread purges across the government. I mean, folks have heard of a thing called Schedule F that was considered yes. at the end of the Trump administration, which would, allowed, would have allowed the president to fire tens of thousands of civil servants, non-political appointees, you know, people who are supposed to be able to serve across administrations, regardless of politics. Um, but there's been legal work to go much further than Schedule F. And in fact, Donald Trump's personnel chief, one of his personnel chiefs uh, is now the head of one of the top think tanks in Washington, one of the top Republican think tanks in Washington, the Heritage Foundation, uh, where they've been working on policies for a second administration to make sure they can root out the so-called deep state by giving the president the authorities to fire civil servants and install political operatives in more positions across the government. It's alarming for the obvious reasons, but there's a lot of functions that you just don't want a political operative doing. Social security checks don't need to be dispersed by a campaign aid. Uh, you know, tornadoes and natural disasters, you don't need FEMA officials uh, that are ideological loyalists determining whether or not to disperse aid to Americans. But the reason Trump wants people in jobs like that is because he sees leverage in those federal powers. So take disaster aid, for instance. We saw this with almost every major catastrophe I can remember uh, that we talked to the president about. He was always looking for some kind of leverage, especially if it was in a blue state. So when there were wildfires in California, he told us to hold off on giving money to the wildfire victims because he was mad because Jerry Brown, who was then the Democratic governor of California, had made a really bad speech about him. I'm sorry, Mr. President, we're not going to withhold aid to people whose houses just burned down because you're pissed off at the governor. It was the same thing in Puerto Rico after the hurricanes came through and ravaged the island. He didn't like it that Democratic leaders were speaking out against him on TV. And so he asked DHS and FEMA to withhold the aid. Again, that would have been illegal. But this happened again and again and again, the attempt to weaponize federal aid against blue states that he didn't like. We, of course, said no. That never happened in the Trump administration. In a second term, would there, people, would there be people who would carry those orders out? I absolutely think there would be.
Here's an interesting wrinkle to the issues you're raising. You're raising them as a warning. You're telling people, watch out. This is what the Trump administration can do. The Trump loyalists, former members of administration, people who are working at exact opposite ends of your goals, which is they want to get Trump elected, are saying the same thing. They're not saying it's a warning. They're saying it's a promise. The New York Times quoted quoted Russell Vogt, who ran the Office of Management and Budget under Trump, as saying, we're talking openly about this. Yeah, we're trying to entirely overhaul the federal government as a paradigm, talking about paradigm shifting ideas, to plant a flag, to shift debate, and later to be able to claim a mandate. Do you worry that if this is out there and the public understands this and Trump still wins, that he will say, you guys knew about this, that yeah, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, I do. Mike, I've not heard anyone say that yet. You are the first I have heard say it that clearly. And obviously, I'm having this conversation every hour of every day lately. Um, Couldn't have put it better that the things that I'm warning about in blowback are the things they are openly claiming they're going to do. And actually saying this is a good thing. And the point here, I think, is not really to try to persuade the most hardcore loyalists that this is going to happen, because I've actually received that feedback from them. My hope is that if, as we talked about earlier, if you're going to create a coalition of the sane in the American political system, you got to get those rational Republicans who privately have reservations to have a little bit of air cover and say, you know what? Yeah, that isn't conservatism. That isn't the GOP I signed up for and get them to bandwagon with other independents and maybe folks on the center left to stop someone so extreme from entering the White House again. But the reason I say there might be a copycat is I think Trump has really created, he's tilled the fertile soil for someone worse than him to rise up. And we have seen a number of his acolytes take policies that even Trump walked back from and take them further. Miles Taylor is the author of First a Warning and Now Blowback. Wait, have we gone so far afield from warnings? No, it's the second word of the subtitle. Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. Excellent to talk with you, Miles. Mike Pesca, you're a patriot. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. That's what Sean Hannity used to say to all his uh, callers, though. So it's like, you know, double-edged sword. <laughs> Sean and I, we're very similar, very similar guys. We really, we think you're the greatest, Mike. You're one of the best that there's ever been. And for more of me talking to Miles Taylor and him talking back to me with our names, we're putting our names to it, you can subscribe to the Pesca Plus option at subscribe.mikepesca.com. There, you can also get an ad-free version of our podcast and extra bonus interviews like this very good chat I did with Miles. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Look at the trucks. Look how they sit unused without a thing to do. Yeah, they were all yellow. At Yellow, we've been hard at work. This morning, trucking company Yellow is in the red. 
After years of financial struggles, the nearly century-old business with 30,000 workers has reportedly shut down. ABC News reporting J.P. Hampstead, strategic analyst of Freight Waves, says quality was something truckers try to do, but these truckers weren't good. I'm speaking of yellow. Among the LTL carriers, yellow is one of the, the lowest quality ones in terms of service reliability and in terms of net promoter score. Um, there's a great service called Mastio that surveys LTL shippers every year and compiles all this data and basically gets them to like rank their transportation providers. Yellow is, is one of the worst performing. And so shippers switching from yellow to another carrier are sort of inherently going to be uh, paying more. They'll be getting better service probably, but they'll be paying more. Wow, hard to see why they went out of business, but not before taking a $700 million loan for being an essential service during the pandemic. Because I guess someone has to be at the lowest end of quality. Someone has to be the planet fitness of the shipping industry. And they were. And they were called Yellow. A couple of things to admit. I had never heard of Yellow before they went out of business. I was confused. I said, wait, there is a Yellow shipping company. I've heard of them. DHL. Their colors are yellow. UPS is brown and DHL is yellow, right? No, that's not right. I mean, it is right that yellow is DHL's colors, but yellow's colors were not yellow. They were orange and black, real jack-o'-lantern vibe. It's kind of embarrassing to me. I'm no J.P. Hampstead, but I pride myself on a, at least a rudimentary knowledge of supply chain management and logistics. Yellow, corporate color is not yellow, bad sign. When a company has this level of disconnect between brand intention and identity, it portends tumult. Also a bad sign, the fact that the president of the Teamsters was tweeting last month some shoddily done mock-ups of tombstones with yellow's name on it. The Teamsters really played hardball in the negotiation that Yellow was trying to engage in. They called it Yellow won, but in fact, Yellow lost. And that restructuring never happened because the Teamsters did not accept the worst contracts in the business. I think, and this is based on some reporting I've read, that the Teamsters thinking is let this market laggard, Yellow, let them go under, better that than balancing the books on the backs of the Brotherhood. The unions will extend benefits to its members to get them to the next job, which, given the overall economy and the fact that there's a national shortage of 80,000 or so truckers, probably means that most of the experienced drivers will get better jobs down the line. Although there is some concern that if you heard that term J.P. Hampstead used, LTL, yellow is an LTL shipper, it means less than truckload. So those skills are perhaps not immediately transferable to all the other big shipping companies. But again, I cite the fact that the Teamsters don't seem that upset by this. The fact that there is this trucking shortage, the fact that the market is going to embrace the skilled drivers, skilled as they are, the thinking is that these 30,000 or so former employees won't be unemployed for long. Now, someone who might not get a job who used to work at Yellow was this guy, as featured on my new favorite podcast, What the Truck, hosted by Timothy Dooner. And the drivers there know it. They were having a good time on Saturday night. I think they knew it was their last night on the block. Roll this tape. They've got the Australian six train going on here, just hooking after hooking after hooking. 
There was some guy in my concert. That's taxpayer-funded stuff. Guy, let them write it out. Let them enjoy it. The visual there is someone linked six trailers together and is driving through the yellow parking lot on the last day of the company's operation in 99 years, blowing off diesel. And why not? Let the truckers dream of a time when their pay was certain and their prospects secure. Hear how they honk? Hear how they honk for you? It was called Yellow. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, with the senior producer being Joel Patterson. And here is a yellow by Coldplay fun fact. Do you know how old recent Grammy winner Billie Eilish was when the song Yellow came out? The answer is none. None years old. Yellow by Coldplay predated Billie Eilish's time on this earth by a few months. They both, I guess you could say, debuted in 2001. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. She's more of a clocks person. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru. Thanks for listening. Yeah, they were all yellow.